Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Easter here at Seabreeze. We're so glad you've joined us to celebrate the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. Now, on that day, 2,000 years ago, I don't think anyone could have begun to imagine the impact that Jesus would eventually have on the world. At the peak of his popularity, Jesus did gather crowds numbering in the thousands, but then just days before his crucifixion, those crowds turned on him and demanded that he be executed. And even on the night of his arrest, the, the 12 who had spent the better part of three years with him fled for their lives. So it looked dark then, but now one-third of the world's population call themselves Christian. And in America, it's even more. Three-quarters of the population in our nation right now identify themselves as Christian. But the numbers don't tell the whole story. In a recent poll of non-Christians, 84% of them said that they do know a Christian personally, but only 15% say that the lifestyle of those believers is any different. Now, anyone can say that they are a Christian, but the one thing that everybody seems to agree on is that being a Christian is supposed to change the way you live. It's supposed to be more than just a label, just a title. So what is an authentic Christian? That's the question we're going to be addressing in this series. Now, you may be here today and just kind of beginning to investigate what it means to be a Christian, investigate the life of Christ. And I think this series will be very helpful for you to understand what it means to make a decision to follow Him. Many of you here today have already made this decision. And for you, this series will be a helpful reminder and maybe a clarifier or a focuser on what it is that you need to be doing as you move forward in your Christian life. On July 5th, 1865, the Secret Service was formed by the president in response to a national threat. Now, it wasn't, as you might think, the threat of an assassination attempt on his life, although that did occur. That's what they largely do now. It wasn't to counter the military threat of conflict, although it was the Civil War. No, Abraham Lincoln formed the Secret Service in 1865 to address the problem of counterfeiting. You see, at the time, it was estimated that about a third of the U.S. currency in circulation was counterfeit. It was fake. And the reason is that the Confederacy was printing high-quality bills to try to undermine the U.S. currency and the Union in the process. And it was a very effective strategy. People were losing confidence in the U.S. dollar because you just couldn't tell the real ones from the fake ones anymore. And so the Secret Service was formed to begin to address this counterfeiting problem. Now, I think the same kind of thing is occurring right now with the Christian faith. As I talk with those who are not Christians, one of the top reasons that always comes to the surface as to why they really don't want anything to do with Christ is that they have encountered a counterfeit Christian. They've been burned by someone who names the name of Christ, and, and now they don't trust anybody with the label. So how can you tell fake from real? Now, in your program today, you've probably already noticed that you should have gotten a dollar bill. So go ahead and grab that dollar bill. Now, some of these dollar bills are real. And if you were fortunate enough to get a real one, uh, they are yours to spend. Some of you are going, really? There's real ones? <laughs> now, if you got a fake dollar bill, please do not attempt to spend these. <laughs> this can get you in a lot of trouble. And we don't, we don't want to be... Uh, 
uh, to blame for any trouble you might get into. So don't even accidentally put these in your wallet. It might get mixed in with some of the other bills, and you might get in a lot of trouble. So just out of curiosity, how many of you got the real ones? Ah, see, there are real ones, yeah? Okay, how many of you got the fake ones? All right, we're sorry about that. But next week, we're going to be doing this with $100 bills, so be sure and come back. No, I'm sorry. Not really. Not really. This, this was your one chance to win a dollar bill. Now, let me ask you, how, how could you tell the real ones from the fake ones? How do you know that you had a real one or a fake one? Now, you haven't been trained by the Secret Service. You haven't gone through any of the training that the Treasury Department does in detecting counterfeit currency. But we've all seen and felt, especially if you see a fake one or feel a fake one, it's very different than a real one. And we've all spent plenty of $1 bills. So we just kind of know the difference. So the question is, in what way should a Christian be noticeably different? I mean, are Christians nicer than the average person? Is that how you can tell them apart? Do they sin less? Are they harder workers? Do they get better grades in school? You know, you just look for the people with a higher GPA, and those are the Christians. <laughs> Do they drive less aggressively on the freeway? I've seen some Jesus fishes doing some bad driving. <laughs> are, they, are they less fun now? Do they think less analytically about the decisions and about life in general? Now, these are some of the common misconceptions people have about what it means to be a Christian. And there's a great deal of confusion out there right now about what it really means to be a Christian. Now, American currency has been redesigned many times. Here's just some samples of the $100 bill and the changes that it's gone through over the last century or so. And the reason it's been redesigned is because counterfeiters keep figuring out how to make really good fake $100 bills in the other denominations. And so the Treasury Department has to keep ahead of the counterfeiters and keep coming up with new security measures, and they have to do this to keep the counterfeiters at bay. But the Christian faith is based on what Jesus taught, and therefore, it doesn't change over time. There isn't several versions of the Christian faith. So to find out what an authentic Christian is, we have to go back to the original documents and examine what the New Testament says a Christian is. And I think one of the best summaries in the New Testament is found in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. And this is going to be our guide for this series. These 17 verses begin with two words. If, then. And the whole idea behind this section of the New Testament is this. If you are a Christian, then this is what's true of you. The 17 verses that follow these two words list the identifying features that are present in the life of someone who truly follows Christ. No one is a perfect Christian. But everyone who is an authentic Christian has these markers in their life, these identifiers. Now, these 17 verses are divided into three sections, and each section has three identifying features. So there's three sets of three for a total of nine identifiers that we're going to look at over the course of the next several weeks. This is how the sections divide up. The first section, verses 1 through 4, talks about the three decisions that Christians make. The next section, verses 5 through 14, talks about the three practices that Christians do. It's not enough to make some decisions. This is a decision that impacts daily life, and there are three practices that Christians do. And then the last section talks about the three perspectives that Christians have. Whenever they face different situations in life, they look at it from a different perspective. 
And we're going to look at all nine identifiers over the course of the next six weeks. But today we begin by looking at the three decisions that Christians make. This is found in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. So let me read this to you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The three decisions that a Christian makes are seen in the three words that precede Christ's name in these first four verses. And they all begin with the same letter, the letter W. These are the three W words, with Christ, where Christ, and when Christ. These identify the three decisions that an authentic Christian makes. So let's look at decision number one, the with Christ decision. This decision is a decision I decide to attach my life to Christ. I decide to be with Christ. Now, with is a small little word that carries life-altering implications. A few years ago, my wife and I were going through security at John Wayne Airport, and we had our carry-on bags already up on the the rollers, and they're getting ready to go through the x-ray machine when all of a sudden we remembered that there was some liquid that we'd forgot about in my wife's carry-on. So I grabbed her bag, and I opened it up, and I began to you know, rifle through it, trying to find the, the items that we knew that we had forgot about. Well, this alerted the TSA agent to ask my wife this question, are you with him? <laughs> now, the reason, obviously, is was I just some guy that stepped out of line to grab some woman's carry-on bag and start rifling through it, or are, are we together? Now, thankfully, my wife decided not to have any fun with this moment, and she just simply said, yes. Now, that's a very simple phrase, are you with him, and a one-word answer, yes, that described something very significant and very deep between my wife and I. It was over 32 years ago that my wife said yes to my marriage proposal. And in doing so, she attached her life to me, and I attached my life to her. We are with each other. Now, what that means is that our lives are forever linked together. Even divorce cannot really fully unravel and untangle a marriage. I mean, we've had two children together. You can't undo that. We now have two grandchildren together. That can't be undone. Our financial future is tied up in each other. She has thrown her lot in with me, and I have thrown my lot in with her. Now, when we say we are with each other, that doesn't mean we've spent every hour of our 32 years together in the same room. There's been times when we've been on the opposite sides of the globe. But no matter where we are, whether we're in the same room or whether we're on the opposite sides of the world, we are with each other. What we do impacts each other. Now, I didn't feel the need to explain all of this to the TSA agent. We just need to get through security. (laughs) But... Rebecca, my wife, being with me is a big, big deal with life-altering implications. And it's similar when a person decides to be with Christ. The decision to attach your life to Christ has many, many life-altering implications. And it's all best summarized by the word that's used in these verses, the word raised. If then you have been raised with Christ... 
If you attach your life to Christ, your life and your future has a very different trajectory to it now. You know, it's what happened to me, honestly, when I got married. I married up. That's the way the phrase goes, and it was true of me. I attached my life to someone who has elevated me. Her mind, her perspective, her companionship has been a blessing to me in ways that, well, I can't even begin to describe to you. Now, I know I'm not the only one to experience this raising effect that can come from attachment. You know, if you married someone that has a lot of money, all of a sudden your net worth was raised. If you married someone who's smarter than you, well, you've made better decisions since that point. You instantly became smarter. Your intellect was raised because you married someone that, you know, had some, some good thoughts. Now, the elevating effect that can occur in a marriage is a small picture of the life-raising impact that attaching your life to Jesus has. You see, my wife is great, and she has elevated my life, but she's never risen from the grave great. Jesus did that. And attaching your life to him elevates you in ways that, well, no other relationship can. We'll be talking about some of the implications of this elevating effect. But probably the the biggest implication is the fact that Jesus forgives sin. You attach your life to him, and your sin is forgiven. Now, that's a big deal because sin is not the moral oops that we tend to think it is. Just a mistake and a oops, and it's common to all of us, so we kind of minimize it. It's not just a moral oops that can be cleaned up with a sorry. It's much bigger than that. It is, in fact, the primary cause of our death because it separates us from God, who is the sustainer of life. And we are breathing right now. Our time is limited, but we are breathing right now because of God's mercy. But one day our sin will have to be answered for. And the resurrection that we celebrate this morning was a victory over sin and the death that is caused by that sin or that that sin causes. So if we decide to attach our life to Christ, our sin is forgiven, which changes not only this life profoundly, but it changes the next life. It puts our life in a whole different direction. That's the key decision, the beginning decision to decide to attach your life to Christ, to be with him. And then from that decision comes the next two. The next W word is where. In this decision, I decide to change my values. What's important to me shifts if I decide to attach my life to Christ. So Christians are with Christ, but where is Christ? Well, he's in heaven, as it says, seated at the right hand of God. Now, we're not there. So how does Jesus being there in heaven impact where we are now at this great distance? Well, let me explain to you this way. My granddaughters right now live out of state, but it doesn't stop them from having an impact on me three states away. My thoughts often turn to them, even though I'm not there. And it's the same with Christ. If you attach your life to him, your thoughts will often turn to where he is. Now, how does that affect you practically? 
Well, it begins to change what you seek. You begin to seek the things that are above, where he is. For example, with my granddaughters, I, I didn't used to like children's books. They're way too simple for me. I don't want to buy and read a ch children's book. But now I love children's books. Why? It's obvious. My granddaughters love them. So something that they love and do three states away is affecting something that I love at that great distance. That's the impact that being with someone can begin to have on you. And the same kind of thing happens with Jesus. Let me give you just one example for me. I personally am not a fan of forgiving those who wrong me. That's a really hard thing to do. So before I decided to follow Christ, that wasn't anything that I ever wanted to work on. But you see, forgiveness, it turns out, is a big deal with Jesus. It's a big deal in heaven. And since I'm seeking the things that are important where Jesus is, I'm working on learning how to forgive. And I've had to make a lot of progress in that because that's not something that naturally is important to me. But because it's important to him and where he is, it's become important to me. Now, this seeking of the things that are above where Jesus is isn't just an emotional feeling that we work up. In other words, I just can't try to work up the emotion of forgiveness. No, I have to, as it says here, I have to set my mind on things that are above. I, I have to learn how to think in line with what's important in heaven. And that's very different because I grew up here, just like you. It's automatic for me to think the way everyone thinks here. It's automatic for me to value the things that are valued here. It's very different to think the way God thinks. Before Jesus, before we are with him, we, we make our major decisions based on whatever we think is best. I mean, everybody does that. But now, if you're with Christ, you set your mind to make decisions that fit in with his thinking. You see, seeking is something that's done with priority. It's an activity of priority. We will only put in seeking level effort for something that's important. And the treasure that's on the top of everyone's seeking list is happiness. We may be seeking all different kinds of things, but the reason is we think it'll make us happy. That's at the top of everyone's seeking list. But that proves to be a very elusive search. That's not because there's a lack of ideas about where happiness might be. I mean, there are all kinds of treasure maps promising to guide us to what will make us happy. And what's common to all of them, the X that marks every spot on these maps, is that it's something here on earth. It's an accomplishment here. It's a possession here. It's maybe a relationship or a person here. But once we arrive at the spot where X had promised us happiness, we tend to find that it's not going to make us happy. Or even if it does make us happy, it's, it fades pretty quickly. It's short-lived. And the reason is that the treasure of happiness isn't buried or hidden anywhere here on earth. The key to life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what it says. It's hidden with Christ in God. Well, where is he? It's not here. So what that means is that the treasure isn't here. 
The key to life isn't here. You see, Christians agree that the treasure is hidden all right. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Happiness just doesn't just fall off the truck on your head. You have to seek it. It's hidden. Christians agree with that. But they know that it's not buried anywhere here, and they can kick over every rock that there is and look for it everywhere here on earth, and they're just not going to come up with the kind of happiness that they are seeking. Now, why do Christians know this? Well, it's because they have died. What does that mean? I mean, I'm a follower of Christ. Many of you are followers of Christ, and we all appear very much alive today. So how, how is it that we have died? Well, you see, when you decide to be with Christ, not only do you join Him in His raising, resurrection kind of power that elevates your life, you also join with Him in His death. And the death is a death to hear. What that means is you suddenly realize here is not the secret to life. Now, you're still living here. You're still paying rent here or mortgage here. You still got to buy groceries here. You're still working here. But if you're a follower of Christ, you're no longer trying to find the hidden treasure here. You know that it's not here. You know, one of the things that happens to most people as they get closer to death is they begin to discover that the truly important things in life were not the visible things. They're the invisible things. Christians just go through the clarity that death can bring a little earlier, when honestly there's still time to do something about the kind of life that we built. Can you imagine how much time this would save? How much searching, how many dollars, how many days, how many years people spend pursuing different treasure maps? There's so much time and effort and grief that can be spared if you have the heads-up knowledge that the treasure isn't here. So take care of your responsibilities here, but don't be spending every waking hour digging for the hidden treasure here. The treasure is hidden with Christ. That's where it is. And then that brings us to the final decision, the final W, the when decision. In this decision, I decide to live for God's larger purposes. As it says, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Christ said before he left, before he ascended back into heaven, that he would reappear one day back here on earth. That's what this is talking about. Well, when? We don't know. Lots of people have wasted a whole lot of time trying to figure out when. Many people have come up with guesses, and they've all been wrong. So there's been a lot of debate, a lot of curiosity about when Jesus might return, but everyone agrees it hadn't happened yet. And that's all you need to know. Hadn't happened yet. But when he does visibly show up again, those who are with him, it says, will appear with him in glory. What does that mean? Well, Webster defines glory as a beautiful and bright light. That's why we sometimes refer to a sunset as glorious. It's bright, but it's also beautiful. That's why when we glorify a person, we are doing two things. We are drawing attention to them. We are putting the spotlight on them. It may be a visible spotlight or just drawing attention to them. But more than just illuminating them, we are applauding them. 
We are saying that something they've done is beautiful or great or good. And we are glorifying a person. Now these lesser glories, whether it's the glory of a sunset or the glory of honoring a person, these lesser, lesser glories point to the final moment of glory. The capital G glory. When the lights go up on God. And the invisible God becomes visible in Christ. Now, right now, we may give God glory for the beauty of a sunset if we're thoughtful enough to realize that He's behind that. But then we see a tragedy, maybe a tragedy that's occurred in our own life or a tragedy that's occurring in the world, and we begin to shake our heads and wonder about God. And our glorifying, our, you know, our, our opinion of God begins to, to diminish. And that's because we tend to think of God as a kind of cosmic butler waiting to be summoned by the people of this world to make the circumstances of their life better. I mean, that's just natural to us. We're all selfish. We all think that everything's about us. And so when we or anyone goes through a really hard thing, we think that God isn't doing his job. But it turns out God is not a cosmic butler. turns out that he is the author of a very, very great and a very, very, very long story. And like any real story, there's lots of ups and downs to it. Lots of moments where, oh no, turns into, oh, and then oh no again. I mean, every great story has a lot of dramatic arc to it. And this is why when, whenever you're reading a book or watching a movie and things get bad, you don't close the book and walk out of the theater in disgust. You know that this is just one part of the story. The movie isn't over. You haven't read the last page yet. And if it's a good story, the kind of story that people will read and the kind of movies that people will actually go to, you know that before the two hours are up and the book or the book comes to an end, the hero is going to make all of the wrongs right and the audience is going to applaud and your heart will swell. That is the moment of glory. Before the moment of glory, it can look pretty bad. Like it did, for example, three days before the resurrection when Christ was crucified. You know, the Sunday that we celebrate this morning was all light and all glory, but it was preceded by death and darkness. And now we await the final display of God's glory when Jesus returns visibly to wrap up history and write every single wrong. Authentic Christians live for that moment, not by spending their days staring longingly up at the sky, but by living their personal stories for the larger story that God is writing. You see, before Christ, everybody is writing and starring in their own personal and much smaller stories. The problem is that we don't have the power to bend reality to our will. And so as we try to write our stories, we keep running into obstacles. Some of them in the form of circumstances, some of them in the form of people. And so our stories are largely works of fantasy, not reality. But when a person decides to be with Christ, they decide to live for a larger purpose than themselves. They are grateful 
to have their names and lives included in the larger story of God. They stop demanding to be the stars of their own small little novel. And they want to be a part of the great story. And what this means, and this is very important to understand, this means that they are willing to wait for everything to work out in their life because they know that they're living in the middle of the great story and not at the end of it. The middle of a story is very different than the end. And honestly, it's very, very hard to live in the middle. We don't know how life is going to work out for us in the middle of the story. You know, who will we marry? If you're not married, you don't know. Will you get married? If you're not married, you don't know. And that could be a real concern. How will that marriage go once you get married? I don't know. Will you have children? I don't know if you'll be able to. If you have children, what's going to happen to them? I, I don't know. If you don't have a job, will you find another job? I, I don't know. If you're stuck in a career you can't stand, not making enough money, will you be able to elevate your career? Will you get a better job? I don't know. Will you be able to save enough to retire? I do not know, and you don't either. Will you recover from the illness that you're facing right now? I don't know. Will your marriage get any better? I do not know. Will you get any better? I certainly don't know that one. Everyone in this room is living with questions like these. We're living in the middle, middle questions. And Christians are not those who get a higher level of service from God in answering those questions. Christians are not those who get a, a bigger bell to ring so that the butler of heaven can come running faster. If that's what you think it means to be a Christian, you kind of get on the inside of the big man upstairs, you'll be very disappointed. You'll be ringing your bell, and God may not be rushing to aid you. So Christians are not those who get a higher level of service from God in answering these questions. No, Christians get a bigger story to fit those open questions and unanswered and disappointing answered questions into. That, that makes all the difference. This means that Christians don't demand favorable answers to the questions of this life in order for them to be okay. Everybody else needs life to go a certain way or they're just ruined. Christians have a reason to, to be okay when the answers are not what they like. Now, let's be honest, like anyone, Christians would prefer positive answers to the questions of life. But they've decided that the hidden treasure to life isn't buried anywhere on this planet. And so the answers, the real important answers, are never going to come here. It's not ultimately experienced in anything that happens here. The hidden treasure to be found is Christ. And he hasn't come back yet to wrap up history and put everything right. So, of course, life is a mixture of good and bad. And, of course, justice is a hit-and-miss proposition. So Christians don't look at the current scoreboard of their life and consider it to be final. It's a scoreboard of a game in process. It's not the final score. And so they are willing to wait for the time when Christ, who is their life, now if he isn't their life, then this isn't going to help them. But when Christ, who really is their life, appears, they're willing to wait for that. 
So what that means is while most of the heads of this world are turning to ooh and to awe and to boo and to hiss, what happens here? Christians are patiently building a life that will be truly head-turning when Christ returns. Right now, it may be head-scratching for people. Then it will be head-turning. These three decisions are the foundation of the Christian life. If you've made the decision to, to be with Christ, you don't ever move past this. You will grow beyond this. But like me, you will need to come back to these decisions and anchor your future in them again and again and again. The decision to be with Christ. The decision to begin to value the things that heaven values instead of the things that are valued here on earth. Where Christ is. And the decision to wait for everything to work out until when Christ returns to live for God's larger purpose rather than trying to produce our own personal bestseller. So I want to invite you to read these four verses now with me, now that we've explained what this is about. And when we get to the W words, I want to put a little emphasis into these words. Now, no screaming or yelling, but just kind of a little pause, and we'll just kind of pause and say them a little stronger. So let's read together Colossians 3, 1 through 4. We're projected on the screen behind me. Let's read together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, if you are considering today whether or not you want to attach your life to Christ, but you've got some questions about Christ, I would encourage you to take the time to examine the questions. I didn't just walk up to my wife one day and say, you're beautiful. Could you marry me? No, we dated and she investigated who I was. I investigated who she was before we made that attaching with each other decision. And you should do the same about Christ. So if that's where you are and you're wanting to look into some of the evidence, we've got a book that we want to give you today. It's called More Than a Carp Carpenter, written by Josh McDowell. It's got a lot of the key evidence that surrounds the evidence of who Christ is. So if you're interested in picking up a free copy of this book, no strings attached, just head out to the information center on the patio and uh, there'll be books out there. Just go ahead and grab one of those on your way out and be sure to take a look at it. Now, if you are here today and you've decided, you know, I want to be with Christ. You've not made this decision before. I can't think of a better time to decide to be with Christ than on Easter Sunday. So if that's a, a new decision, a decision you want to make, I would encourage you to make that decision as we pray here in just a moment. And then I would ask you just to, if you would, be sure to check the box on the front of the connection card under send me information that says my recent decision to follow Christ. We want to be able to, to help you as you take the next steps following these decisions. So please check that box. Now I'm going to pray. And what I'm going to pray is I'm going to pray, pray a prayer of commitment of these three decisions. So if, again, this is the time when you want to make this decision to be with Christ, then, then allow this to reflect your own decision. If you've already made this decision like I have, 
Then like I'm going to do as I pray this prayer, this prayer is going to remind me and restate again for me the three decisions and commitments that I made decades ago when I decided to follow Jesus Christ. So let's pray together and join me on this. Jesus, we, we gather today to celebrate the day that you walked out of the tomb and the evidence surrounding that that proved that you were, in fact, who you claimed to be. Jesus, the evidence about who we are is abundantly clear. We are, all of us, a mixed bag of good and bad. But far too often, the bad tends to take over and we do damage to ourselves and to those around us. The evidence about who you are is abundantly clear, Jesus. There's no way to explain the miracles that you did, in particular the resurrection that we celebrate today, other than to recognize that you are God in flesh. And so today, we declare and we decide to be with you, to attach our present and our future to you, to accept the forgiveness that you offer and the eternity that you provide. We attach ourselves to you. And so we seek now the things that are above. We make it our goal to do your will on earth as it's done in heaven. We know this is the process, but we begin to set our lives in that direction. Help us to grow, to understand how to think the way you think about the decisions that we make here on earth. And help us then to face the challenges of today. Everyone in this room is living in the middle of, of the story. There are lots of unknown questions. Some may have more answers that they like than others. But every one of us has questions that we, we just don't know how it's going to answer. And we're, honestly, we're on pins and needles about some of these questions. But help us to be willing to wait and to fold our days and our life into the larger story while we wait for the day, Jesus, when you return so that we can be with you in glory. Thank you again for your sacrifice on our behalf. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.